Love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Amos chapter number seven, and uh, I'm going to warn you that uh, I'm, I'm wearing two mics tonight uh, because we, we have a brand new mic that we're going to be using for the uh, youth rally, so I'm testing it out on you, all right? And if it doesn't work or if there's a problem with it, then, um, then I've got another mic on that we know works, and I can turn it off and turn the other one on. So just be prepared, and Brother David might be fluctuating the volumes uh, out there and, and, and just kind of uh, making sure that the mics are all ready to go. So sometimes we, we test them during the day, but honestly, uh, the best way to test it is just, you know, in the wild. So uh, I guess that means you're the wild, but we're um, tr- going to try that out. So just be, if, if something happens, just be patient with us regarding that. You're there in Amos uh, chapter number seven. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are in a chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Amos. And tonight we begin a brand new section in Amos. Uh, And this section is really kind of the end of the book of Amos. It's chapters 7, 8, and 9. And what we have in this uh, section is five visions that God gives Amos. If you remember the first two chapters, we had eight sermons that he preached to nations surrounding Israel and to Judah and Israel. And then in the middle... Uh, We had three sermons directed at the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in chapter 7, 8, and 9, we have five visions that finish up this book. Tonight, in chapter 7, we're going to see three of those visions. And we're going to see these visions that uh, Amos had of grasshoppers, of fire, and of the plumb line. I'm going to go ahead and just give you the outline up front. So if you're taking notes, maybe you can jot this down. And I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. But I'll I'll give this to you up front so you can kind of see how the chapter is divided. But I've got it divided into three uh, different sections. Uh, Verses 1 through 9, we see the the apparitions of Amos. And, of course, the word apparitions is just a word that means the supernatural appearances. And that's what we have in verses 1 through 9 is these supernatural visions that God gives Amos. So verses 1 through 9, if you want to outline it, you could write the word apparitions or the apparitions of Amos. Then in verses 10 and 13, we have accusations towards Amos. And there are some accusations. There's a character that we'll see here by the name of Amaziah that makes some accusations towards uh, Amos. It's a, little, it's a little bit of a difference in Amos because in Amos, it's been uh, a, a monologue in the sense that he's been speaking and preaching. But then when we get to this chapter, there's an interaction between him and other characters. So we'll see that in verses 10 and 13, we have the accusations. And then in verses 14 and 17, we have the answers of Amos, the answers of Amos. So the operations of Amos, verses 1 through 9, the accusations towards Amos, verses 10 through 13, and then the answers of Amos in verses 14 and 17. So I want you to notice these visions, these apparitions that, uh, that Amos sees there. And the first two are all, the first three, the three in the chapter are in verses 1 through 9. The first two are in chapters, uh, in, in, in verses 1 through 6. And we're going to look at these together, these first two visions of the grasshopper and of the fire, because these visions are given as a pair. They are connected. Uh, so I think it'd be good for us to look at them together. So notice there in Amos chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And like I said, these are apparitions, these are visions, these are supernatural appearances that 
God is showing Amos. That's what he says there in verse 1. He says, thus hath the Lord God. Notice the word showed, referring to a vision, something he physically saw unto me. And behold, he formed, so here's vision number one, grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. So here Amos begins by telling us that he saw this vision that God showed him, and what he saw was grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. So it was the latter growth or the second season of the year when they would be uh, harvesting at the beginning of the shooting up. He sees these grasshoppers and they come, notice last part of verse 1, lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Now that phrase, after the king's mowings, is probably a reference to paying taxes. You know, the king got his mowing in, he got his part first. And then what Amos is saying is that they had this shooting up or they had this harvest. The king got his part, his, his mowings. But after that, grasshoppers showed up and they took the rest and they left the people without the things, the provisions that they were in need of. So this is the vision that Amos saw. And I want you to notice it's a vision. It hasn't actually happened yet. It's something that God is showing Amos. This is going to happen. Notice verse 2. And it came to pass... That when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, I want you to notice this because this is something that's highlighted in these first two visions. The Bible says there in verse 2, And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, so this is Amos, he says, Then I said, O Lord God, forgive. So I want you to notice that Amos, he sees his vision. He sees the people, they're working hard. They've got this harvest that they're supposed to bring in, the shooting up of the latter growth, and the king's already taken his part. And then these grasshoppers show up, and they eat everything up, and there's nothing left for the people. And when Amos saw this, the Bible says that his response was, Then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. So here we see Amos is interceding on behalf of the people, and he is praying for these people. He is interceding on behalf of God, and he's asking God to forgive them. He says, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? And notice why he is interceding. He says, for he is small. He says he doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the ability. Jacob here is a reference to the nation of Israel, and he's interceding. And it's interesting to me, because when you look at the book of Amos, what you see up to this point is a lot of hard preaching towards the nation of Israel. He's been preaching against them, preaching against their covetousness, against their greediness, against, against their unjust, uh, unjust dealings. But here you see the heart of a preacher because though he's been preaching hard against them as he should, he also loves them and he's praying for them. And when he sees the judgment of God coming, he gets on his knees and he prays and he says, Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. He says, Lord, forgive them. Lord, uh, please don't do this to them. Don't harm them in this way. Now, why don't you notice the response from God? Verse 3, the Lord repented for this. The Lord repented for this. Now, the question that I want to ask you is, what's the this? What is the for this that the Lord repented for? 
What was it that caused or moved God to repent and to decide? Because notice verse 3, the Lord repented for this, and notice what God says, it shall not be, saith the Lord. So God sends a vision of these grasshoppers just destroying all the crops, taking all the provision of the people. The man of God says, Lord, don't do it. Oh, Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. And then the Bible tells us that the Lord repented, and he says, it shall not be. He said, I'm not going to do it. He said, the grasshoppers are not going to come. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Notice verse 4. In verse 4, we have the second vision. Thus hath the Lord God showed. Again, a vision, something he saw. Unto me. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. Here's the second vision. The first vision we saw there in uh, verse number uh, one was grasshoppers. Here in verse number four, it, we see that it is the Lord called to contend or to fight with them by fire. So it's a vision of fire, fire that is going to destroy. Notice, and it devoured the great deep and it did eat up a part. So now he, Amos sees a second vision and this is a vision of God's judgment where he's bringing fire upon the land to bring judgment. I want you to notice it again, verse 5. That's why I want you to notice that these two visions are a pair. They're given to us as a pair because they're teaching the same principle. Verse 5, Then said I, O Lord God, cease. O Lord God, cease. Now in verse 2, we, we saw Amos say, O Lord God, forgive. In verse 5, we see Amos say, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. And I want you to notice again in verse 6, the Lord repented for this. For what? For Amos' prayer. Because Amos said, O Lord God, cease, the Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. I want you to notice that in Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we see these two these visions. The first vision is a vision of grasshoppers. The second is a vision of fire. But what we're learning here and what's being taught here is the idea of intercessory prayer. It is this idea that you and I can take a position of prayer, which is an intercessory position of prayer. Now, you may have never even heard that term. I hope I, if you haven't ever heard it, it's because you're not paying attention. But uh, maybe you're not familiar with that term. But let me just run some verses with you and show you some things about that. Keep your place there in Amos chapter 7. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 2 in, uh, in, in the New Testament. We've got all the T books that are all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st Timothy chapter 2. Usually when we think of prayer, we think of praying for ourselves. Praying for our loved ones, praying for people that are close to us. But a lot of our prayer is very selfish. It, and, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. We're supposed to bring all our needs unto the Lord. We should bring our complaints unto the Lord. It's good for you to pray for whatever you need. The Bible tells us to do that. But that is not the only type of prayer. There are different types of prayer. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 1. First Timothy 2, 1. The Bible says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications... Supplication is asking for something. Prayers, again, asking for something. But then notice this, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. See, there is a type of prayer that is simply not asking for anything but giving thanks. 
There's another type of prayer, which is supplications or coming to God for our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Then there are prayers. The word prayer simply means to ask when we are asking God to do something for us, to do something that maybe he doesn't have to do or that we need him to do on our behalf. But then there is this category of prayer called intercessions. We would call it intercessory prayer. The word intercession or intercede is defined as to plead or mediate on behalf of another person. It is a prayer that we pray where we simply are not asking for anything for ourselves, are not asking for anything that we need. We're not, it's not a supplication, not asking for a supply. It is not a prayer in the sense that we're asking for something we need, but it is simply us coming before God on behalf of somebody else and interceding and, uh, and having intercessory prayer on their behalf. Go to Genesis, if you would. Genesis chapter 18 It's the first book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find, Genesis 18. Here we see the prophet Amos model for us intercessory prayer. And I want to ask you the question, and you don't have to answer it out loud. Please don't answer it out loud. But I wonder if we, I wonder how much intercessory prayer is going on by Christians today where we're coming to God and interceding on behalf of others. Intercessory prayer is something that is modeled throughout the Bible. I, we could spend the whole night, I could pitch a whole sermon just on intercessory prayer, and probably one of these days I will, but let me just give you some examples. Uh, one of the most maybe well-known examples of intercessory prayer is found in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, this will give you an example of what intercessory prayer is. Genesis chapter 18, we see the example of Abraham doing intercessory or participating in intercessory prayer genesis chapter 18 and verse 22 the bible says and the men turned their faces from thence and went towards sodom remember when three men appeared to abraham one was the lord the other two were angels they uh fellowshiped and spent time with abraham but then the two angels went on to sodom in order to see what was happening in sodom and of course in the next chapter god destroys sodom and gomorrah with his judgment. But I want you to notice what the Bible says here. And the men turned their faces toward, from thence and went toward Sodom. Notice what the Bible says. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Here the Bible tells us that Abraham stood before the Lord. This is a picture of intercessory prayer. Look at verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now notice Abraham is making no request for himself. There's nothing here that's going to benefit Abraham in any way, shape, or form. He simply cares about an individual that's in Sodom, that shouldn't be in Sodom, by the name of Lot. And he is interceding and having intercessory prayer on behalf of Lot. And here, Abraham, we see him come to the Lord. The Bible tells us he stood yet before the Lord, and he says, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be 50 righteous. That word peradventure means Perhaps, he says, maybe perhaps, uh, Abraham says, and I think he's, uh, this is wishful thinking on his end, but he says, peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Notice verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. You say, what is this? This is intercessory prayer. 
The Lord was going to send two angels down to Sodom to destroy the whole thing. But Abraham, the Bible says, stood before the Lord, and he says, well, what, what, about, what, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you destroy 50 righteous people? And he says, if there are 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare. Then we see Abraham begin to bargain. This is how we know he was a good businessman. Genesis 18, 28, peradventure, he says, there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? Then he said, if I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, peradventure, there shall be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak, peradventure, there shall be 30 be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak yet but this one peradventure 10 shall be found there and he said I will not destroy it for 10's sake and what we see here is this picture and of course Abraham's thinking to himself if, if Lot just got his family saved and his uh, son-in-law saved then we should have the 10 that we need of course Lot failed at that but God still showed mercy and sent the angels in to bring Lot out and his family but what we see here is a picture of intercessory prayer let me give you another example. Go to Exodus 32. You're there in Genesis. Just flip over to Exodus 32. Do me a favor. When you get to Exodus 32, put a ribbon or a bookmark there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Exodus 32. And I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Exodus 32. And we, we could look at example after example. I'm not going to do that tonight because I've got other stuff to cover. But I want you to notice these examples of intercessory prayer. Exodus 32, verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. This is after Moses came down from the mount, and the children of Israel were uh, fornicating and were dancing naked and were worshiping a golden calf. And Moses looks at the people and he says, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure... Perhaps, he says, I shall make an atonement for your sin. He said, I'm going to go and intercede on your behalf. Verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. I love how it's written down here because you can see the emotion in Moses. And by the way, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great intercessor. But I want you to know something that if there's a character in the Bible who can be highlighted as a great in, uh, 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 prayer warrior when it comes to interceding, it would be Moses time and time again. Not just here, but time and time again. He intercedes on behalf of the people. When the Lord says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kill them. I'm done with them. I'm so tired to them time and time again we see Moses coming before the Lord and interceding and by the way usually it's for people that want to kill him and he goes and he says notice verse 32 yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin and then he says this and if not blot me I pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written 
He makes this compassionate plea. And of course, we know that God uh, does not wipe out the entire nation. The judgment of God does come. But uh, Moses' intercession works and over and over. And here's all I'm telling you. Intercessory prayer is when we intercede on behalf of somebody else. We see this beautiful picture of intercessory prayer in this passage in Amos. Now, keep your place there in Exodus. 32. We're going to come right back to it, but go back to Amos. While you turn there, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 7, and let me just say this. The greatest example of intercessory prayer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible says, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. Hebrews 7.25 says, wherefore he is, also, uh, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing... He ever liveth to make intercession for them. You know, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ is up in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. You say, what does he do? He ever liveth to make intercession. He is, he's making intercession on our behalf. He is our high priest. That is the picture of, in, of, a, of, a, of a mediator. He is the one that we can get access to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is our mediator. He is our intercessory. And the Bible tells us that he is often and daily making intercession on our behalf. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Every day you do something stupid. And so do I. And every day we do something wrong and we do something we know it's not right and we do something we shouldn't do or we don't do something we should do. And every day the Lord Jesus Christ is up in heaven saying, have mercy on him. He's a little slow. Just give him time. Don't, 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 don't destroy him. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, there's two lessons taught here in Amos Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And they're connected for a reason. I want you to see them. We see this example of intercessory prayer, but then we also see another example of repentance. Notice Amos chapter 7, verse 2. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating uh, the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Notice verse 3. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. I want you to notice that in Amos chapter 7, verse 3, we see the Lord. You see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Jehovah God. God repented. Look at verse 5. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. Verse 6, the Lord repented for this, this also shall not be, saith the Lord. I want you to notice that there's a lesson here regarding repentance. Now let's just run a couple of verses real quickly. Go back to Exodus 32, and let me say this, and I realize that you probably know this, but it's, I don't want to assume that everybody knows everything, because it's likely that there, we have people here that maybe don't know. Exodus 32, 11. According to the Bible, and we have spent all night looking at this. I'm not going to. I'll just show you a couple of verses. But according to the Bible, the word repent means to turn or to change. Amen. Exodus 32, 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, we just saw this story. Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Notice verse 12. Wherefore? 
The word wherefore means for, for what reason? Should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? No, this is uh, Moses speaking to God. He says, turn from thy wrath. He says, turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. I want you to notice these words are used interchangeably. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent. Why? Because the word repent means to turn or to change. Go to Jonah chapter number three. If you've got your place in Amos, right after Amos, you have the book of Obadiah. And right after Obadiah, you have the book of Jonah. Jo- uh, uh, Jonah chapter three. And look at verse nine. Jonah three, nine. Jonah chapter three and verse nine. You, you know these verses. You're familiar with them, but let's look at them. The Bible says, who can tell? If God will, notice these words, turn and repent. Turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. The Bible teaches that repentance is to turn or to change your mind. And I want you to notice that in the Bible, we've already seen several examples of this. But in John chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, excuse me, in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, I want you to notice it again. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, talking about the, the, the city of Nineveh. Notice, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. I want you to notice that in the Bible, the person who repents the most in the Bible is God himself. Now, the Bible says here that God repented of the evil. We already talk about this in the book of Amos. The word evil does not mean sin. The word evil simply means to hurt or to bring judgment, to destroy something. Sin is evil, but not all evil is sin. But God here is repenting. And the point that I want to make is this, that the word repent does not always mean from your sins. Now, this is important because... People who want to teach the repent of your sins heresy that you got to repent of your sins in order to be saved. They don't have one verse. There's not one verse in the Bible that says these words, repent of your sins. It doesn't exist. There's not one verse in the Bible that says repent of your sins. You got to repent of your sins. So what they do is they find a bunch of verses in the New Testament that say repent. Because in the New Testament all over the place, The word repent or repentance is used. And then what they tell you is, well, repent means to repent of your sins. Anytime you see repentance, it's repenting of your sin. Well, if that's true, then you're saying God is the biggest sinner in the Bible because nobody repents more than God. And the truth of the matter is that the word repent simply means to change your mind or to turn on a position you had. Obviously, yes, when you're saved, does God want you to repent of your sins? Absolutely. But when you're not saved, what do you have to do in order to be saved? You have to stop sinning to be saved. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're believing in a false God or a false religion, you're trusting in something else to save you, then you do have to turn from that unbelief, that wrong belief, in order to get saved. But you don't have to quit smoking cigarettes to be saved. Now, you should quit smoking cigarettes, but you don't need to do it to be saved. So repent does not always mean of your sins. And the best proof of that is the fact that God repents more than anybody in the Bible. So what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means, go back to Amos chapter 7. While you turn there, let me read to you from Jeremiah 26. You go back to Amos 7, Jeremiah 26. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will repent. 
and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. You say, what? What does this mean? Here's what it means. There's a couple of takeaways that I want you to, to understand. Them. First of all, it means this, that God changes his mind. God will often have a decision he's made, a course he's going to go down, and then something changes, and it causes him to change his mind, to repent, to decide something different, to decide, I'm going to take another course. God is often repenting in the Bible because he's changing his mind. What does that mean? What are the implications? Well, first of all, that blows Calvinism out of the water. Because this idea of this, you know, God that has foretold and has already ordained that everything will happen, then why does he keep changing his mind? If he already decided who was going to be saved, not saved, where you're going to live, if he's decided everything on your behalf, why does he keep changing his mind? You know why he keeps changing his mind? Because he's given us free will. So we see that God repents. What does that teach us? It teaches us that you don't have to repent of your sins. Repentance has nothing to do with sin. Now, you can repent of your sin, but you can also repent of other things because God is not a sinner and God is often repenting. It teaches us that God can change his mind and God does change his mind and that blows Calvinism out of the water. But the reason, those are all just side arguments and things that you should be aware of. The reason that this is being brought up together is because Amos is interceding on behalf of the people. He is practicing intercessory prayer, and what's highlighted here is that God can change his mind. And you know what the lesson is this, that you and I have been given power to be able to change, potentially, the mind of God. That God can, can have made a decision that God can have made a choice and that you and I can potentially influence God and cause him to repent. And look, sometimes people, they think too hard of these things. And, and, and I've, I've heard people even speak against this type of preaching. That we have some sort of effect or influence on God. And I'm not saying that we control God. Obviously, there are some things that God has decided and nothing's going to change him. But look, here, here's a perfect example for you if you're just kind of struggling with this. You know, one day God had said to me, not verbally, obviously, but God had said to me and he said to you that the wages of sin is death and that I'm a sinner and that you're a sinner. And he had ordained that because of our sin, we would spend eternity in hell. But then I cried unto the Lord. I asked him to forgive me. I, I put my faith in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I put my faith and my trust in him. Not in myself, not in my religion, not in my works. I called upon the Lord for salvation. I put my faith in Christ. And you know what God did? He changed his mind. Amen. He changed his mind. He said, I'm not going to send you to hell. I'm going to quicken your spirit and make you a child of mine. I thank God that I don't serve the God of Calvin who says that I can call up to the Lord and you say, sorry, I already decided you're going to burn in hell just because. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he'll change his mind about anybody. He'll change his mind about everybody. And look, people often, they struggle with this idea of intercessory prayer. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understand it all. But the Bible does teach this, that there is something about prayer that we can come to God and pray to God and change his mind. And I, I don't understand it. I, I'm not going to tell you that I understand it. I, I, I feel like 
I can understand it to a degree because I know for myself as a, as a pastor, I've got employees that work for me. Obviously, I've got six children. I'm not saying those are the same. I'm just talking about positions of authority. And one thing that I've, I've noticed as a leader sometimes, sometimes I think to myself with my employees, and I also think this with my kids at times, I think to myself, you know, if they were to ask me for X, Y, and Z, I would do it or I would allow it. But I'm not going to go out of my way to do it. You know, if they're not bold enough or considerate enough to think of it on their own, you know, if they ask me for it, I would do it. I'd be fine with it. But they're not asking, so whatever. And, and maybe that, to some small degree, I think that's how God is. God is up in heaven, and he's looking down, and he's asking himself, are you paying attention? Amen. Do you see what's going on? If you would make a request, I would answer your prayer. But you have not because you ask not. And oftentimes when you ask, you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. I don't understand all the things about intercessory prayer. I'm just telling you this. If you have a wayward child, you don't have to sit there and act like all hope is lost. You've got a spouse that's not right with God. You don't have to have this hopeless, defeated attitude. You can come before the throne of God and make intercession and ask for them and say, Lord, do what you got to do. Oftentimes when I pray my intercessory prayers, I'm praying things like this. Lord, do whatever you've got to do. Be as harsh as you have to be and as gentle as you can be to bring them to the end of themselves. Intercessory prayer is something that we should practice. I'm just telling you, every, every, I, don't, I don't understand this thing. You know, people are like, oh, I don't have much of a prayer life. They got all these kids. I don't have much of a prayer life. I've been thinking to myself, if I won't pray for my kids, if, if, if my wife and I won't pray for our, my kids, who will? Job was a great father, and the Bible tells us that he would get up early and, and, and perform these sacrifices. Obviously, this was in the Old Testament, but he would perform sacrifices on behalf of his kids. Why? Intercessory prayer. Pray, Lord, help my kids. Lord, help them turn out right. Let me tell you something, Mom. Let me tell you something, Dad. You need to get down on your knees. You say, we got this next generation youth rally coming up. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be events. There's going to be bowling. There's going to be skits. There's going to be wrestling. But Mom and Dad, get on your knees and intercede for your kids. Pray that God would get... I don't understand this parenting just gives up on their kids. I mean, you'd be shocked how many people are just, ah, just done with my... I'm glad God's not like that. You say, Pastor, what would you do if your kids are... My kids are... I've got, by God's grace, up to this point, God's given me good kids, and I'm thankful for that. I should say, my, God's given my wife good kids. I'm just there. <laughs> but you know, if one of my kids went off to the world, I'd pray every day. I, I wouldn't give up on them. I'd get on my knees every day. And I say, Lord, deliver them unto Satan if that's what you need. Destroy the flesh that their spirit may be saved. Be as hard as you need to be and as gentle as you could possibly be, Lord, and bring them back to you. I, I'm just telling you, there's a, there's a place for intercessory prayer in the Christian life. If you don't love the Lord enough to pray for yourself, will you pray for others? You say, I don't got anybody to pray. You got a pastor. Amen. You got a pastor's wife who've got a target on their back. You could pray. You say, oh, I'm never going to be a preacher. I'm not going to stand up there and preach. Yeah, but you could keep a preacher in the fight. 
by praying and interceding on his behalf and asking God, would you please help my pastor? Would you please help my pastor's wife? Would you please help uh, our church? Would you just continue to bless and help and protect, Lord? Intercessory prayer. You and I have the power. The Bible says about Jacob that his name was changed from Jacob, which means supplanter, which means deceiver. It was changed to Israel. Why? Because he had power with God and men. When? When were we told that he had power with God and men? When he wrestled with God. Think about that. He wanted a blessing. God didn't want to give him a blessing. He wrestled with God and he got the blessing. That's intercessory prayer. That's changing the mind of God. That's coming to God and praying and pleading. And God repenting and saying, I'll give you that blessing. I'll answer that prayer. Go back to Amos chapter 7. Look at verse 7. In verses 7, 8, and 9, you see the third vision. It's the vision of the plumb line. Honestly, it's mentioned briefly in this chapter, but it's probably the most well-known thing of the book of Amos, the plumb line. Usually when people talk about Amos, they talk about the plumb line. We've chosen the plumb line as the artwork for the thumbnails for this sermon series because it's what people often think of. Amos chapter 7 and verse 7, the Bible says this, Thus he showed, this is the vision, showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. The word plumb line is defined as a plumb line is a piece of string with a weight attached to the end that is used to check that something, like a wall, is proper and straight and vertical, that the slopes are correct. It's a very simple tool. It's just, it's just a rope or a string with a weight, and you let it drop, and once it falls and it settles, it gives you a straight line. This is used in the ancient world. It's still used today. <laughs> yeah, today, you know, people have got, um, obviously there's more technology and things, but you could use a, if you needed to paint a straight line or wanted to make sure there's a you could set up a, a plumb line and you'd get that straight line and it was a way to measure something, to make sure that something was straight and not crooked. Notice Amos chapter 7 and verse 8. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. I like that. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Here we see this vision of a plumb line, and the idea is this, that God was setting a measurement, that God was going to measure the people. He is illustrating the children of Israel as a wall, and the Bible says there in verse 7, he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. He's looking at a wall. The children of Israel, this, this vision, the idea is that they have built this wall and they've used the plumb line and God says okay I'm going to go up on top of that wall and I'm going to use my plumb line I'm going to let my plumb line drop and I'm going to see how straight your wall actually is he's measuring the children of Israel you say what is the illustration here 
What, what is the idea? And the idea is this, and I want you to understand something. When it comes to a plumb line, and of course this is, this is technology from the ancient world, but when it comes to a plumb line, the way that it would work is that you start from the top and come down. You don't start with a weight and a string and say, okay, well, I'm going to start here, and then you know, I'm going to bring the string up, and that's not how it works. You start at the top, you tie it down, and you let it fall. The idea is that proper judgment does not come from the ground up, but from heaven down. If you want to measure your life, if you want to measure whether what you're doing is right, whether your life is straight, or whether you're crooked or not, you don't look from the ground up. You start from the heavens down. You say, what is the plumb line? I'm here to tell you something. The plumb line is the word of God. Around here, I have a saying that I like to say as many times as possible, and I'm hoping it gets stuck in your head, and it is the idea that we ought to build our lives on the Bible. Build your life on the Bible. Build your life on the Word of God. Let me tell you something. Amos would say it this way. This is the plumb line. This is the measurement. It comes from heaven and it comes down. It tells us when something's straight. It tells us when something's wrong. It tells us when something's crooked. If you want to have an opinion about something, you look at this plumb line and you decide, what does the Bible say about it? What does the word of God say about it? What does God think about it? And then you measure yourself up to that plumb line. You ought to build your life on the Bible, but you know what? You ought to measure yourself up by the Bible. Stop comparing ourselves with ourselves. You can find anybody that's not doing well to make yourself feel good. The problem is we like to measure our crookedness with other people's crookedness. God says, take my plumb line, the word of God, the message of God. It's straight. It won't lead you astray. And you measure yourself up to that. That's the plumb line. So you got to build your life on the Bible, but you got to measure your life to the Bible. 2 Peter 1, verse 19, you have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. The Bible says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. You do well to take heed to the word of God. You got to build your life on the Bible. You got to measure your life up against the Bible. If you have an opinion, stop telling everybody what are your opinions are and just figure out what does God think about the thing. And just decide if God, you know, whatever God says, I'm going to go with that. Because he's up there and I'm down here. And when we start trying to measure from our, we're going to get it all crooked. We're going to get it all wrong. So measure yourself to the plumb line. Look at Amos chapter 7 and verse 10. So verses 1 through 9, we see the operations. We see the visions of the grasshopper, the fire, and the plumb line. Then in verses 10 through 13, we see the accusations, the accusations towards Amos. I'll try to move through these as quickly as I can. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. I want you to notice that Amaziah, the priest, is attacking Amos, the prophet. He's going to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and he's saying to, to, to the king of Israel, Amos hath conspired against thee. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. I, I, I love that little phrase, the land is not able to bear all his words. His preaching was so hard and so harsh, he said, we can't bear this. This guy can't stay here. You know, when somebody preaches the word of God, people often take it personally. That's what's going on here. 
Amos was preaching, and they're taking it personally. They say, the land cannot bear all his words. I realize that that's just the way life is, but let me just give you some advice. When the word of God is preached, don't take it so personally. Don't just, why don't, you say, what's the problem? Why don't you just measure yourself up to the plumb line? When the word of God is preached, stop getting, taking it so personally. Oh, pastor, saying that because of me. Why don't you say, well, look, it came from heaven. It's the word of God. It's right and straight. I'm crooked. Why don't you just measure yourself up to the plumb line? Amen. And look, I'm going to say this to you as kindly and as lovingly. I hope you know my wife and I love each and every one of you. And I'm going to say this to you as kindly and as lovingly as I can. And I hope you understand my heart. Here it is. You're not that important. The Bible says that one of the problems we have is that we just think too highly of ourselves. Stop being taking things so personally, just measure yourself to the plumb line. When the, when the word of God and the preaching of God's word offends you, why don't you ask yourself, is it in the Bible? Is what he said true? Is what he said right? Then forget about the messenger and worry about the message and ask yourself, then maybe I should strain myself up to the plumb line. When you preach God's word, people often take it personally. Letter B, when you preach God's word, people often lie about what you said. Notice there in Amos 7, verse 11. For thus Amos saith, he's about to quote Amos, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. So Amaziah is lying about Amos to the king. He's saying, king, have you heard what what Amos said? Amos said that you're going to die by the sword. That's not what Amos said. Amos said that... God said, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The house, meaning the household of Jeroboam, the children of Jeroboam. That's actually what happened. Later on, the children of Jeroboam go captive. But this guy is saying, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. Let me tell you something. Oftentimes, this is what I've learned over 12 years of ministry. Oftentimes, when people are offended by the preaching of the word, when you actually talk to them, you realize they didn't even hear what you say. I mean, literally, I've had situations where I'm like, look, I'm sorry that you are offended, but can I just play back the sermon to you? Because what you heard me say and what I actually said are not the same. And look, what we need to do as people of God is to decide that we're going to measure ourselves up to the plumb line and stop taking things so personally. And stop lying about or assuming about what people, what we think they meant. What what, did he say? Well, I think that he was trying to say, no, no, what did he say? He said, I shouldn't drink alcohol. Okay. Is that what the Bible says? Well, yeah. Well, then then what's the problem? Stop drinking. Well, I think he said it because, stop worrying about why you think he said it. Is that what the Bible says? When you preach God's word, often people will lie about what you said. And look, the proof is, look at all the out-of-context clips and sermons people put out there of us trying to make us look bad or trying to make us sound like we said something we didn't say. Look at verse 12. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. Not only do people take it personally when we preach the word of God, people will lie about what we actually said, and then people will misrepresent your motives. Here you have Amos being accused by Amaziah, and he's telling him, O thou seer, the word seer is an old word that means prophet. O thou seer, 
Flee thee away in the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. What's he saying? He's saying, you're just preaching for money. You're just preaching to be fed. He said, why don't you just go to Judah? They like you there, and they'll feed you with bread. That's all you really want. They are misrepresenting the motives of Amos. And look, when you preach God's word, people are going to want to shut you up. Look at verse 13. But prophesy not again anymore at Bethel. I'm saying, just get out of here. For it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Now I want you to notice in verses 14 through 17, we see the answer of Amaziah. I'm, I'm moving through this quickly because I'm out of time. Amos 7:14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, here's the answer to the accusations. I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. What's, what's he saying? Because he's being told, you're just preaching for money. This is just a profession. This is just a job for you. And here's what the Bible is telling us, that God is looking for willing people, not just professionals. He says, that, he said, I, I, I was not a prophet. He said, this wasn't my job. Neither was I a prophet's son. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 14. But I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Say, look, I had a job. I, there were, I was doing other stuff. I, I, this wasn't like I was born into this. I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. And here's what Amos is saying when he's saying, I had a job. I was in herdman and a gatherer of sycamore uh, fruit. Notice verse 15. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. He said, I was following the flock. I was doing my job. I was in herdman. I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit, and the Lord took me. He said, You know why I'm preaching? Because the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go. Prophesy unto my people Israel. You say, what's, what's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. When it, and this is, of course, for preachers, and the application for preachers is this, that look, we as preachers, be careful about preachers that are just doing it to be fed. Right. Doing it for the money. But also be careful of just assuming, you know, I often teach our church family this, and you do not pay the pastor to preach. Sometimes people say that to me, and God bless you. I'm not mad at you, but, you know, you don't pay me to preach. Now, you provide for the needs of the pastor, and, of course, we have staff here. You provide for the needs to free me up to do the work of God, but you don't pay me. You don't pay me to do anything. Honestly, today I was just looking at the calendar as I was working and stuff, and I, and I, and I, I looked at the calendar, and I realized it was March 1st, and I thought to myself, it has been one month since I took a day off. The reason I know that is because when I took a day off was my birthday, February 1st, and that's just because my wife insisted. <laughs> and it wasn't even my birthday. It was actually February 2nd because February 1st fell on a Wednesday, so I worked all day on my birthday, and I took off the 2nd and spent some time uh, with my wife. And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm not saying that to prop myself up. I'm not saying that to say anything but this. You're not paying me to do this. If you were paying me to do this, I'd, I would clock in at 9, I would clock out at 5, I would tell you not to call me on my day off. That's what I would be doing if I was doing this for money. We're not doing this for money. And then I think of my poor wife, who does counseling, who, who puts on all these events, who works hard. She doesn't get one red penny from this church. I mean, not one cent. 
by God's grace, no one's ever complained about us getting paid or whatever, but I, I often think to myself, you guys are getting a great deal because whatever you pay me, you can just divide that in half because you get two employees out of this thing. And you better believe I've been tempted at times to fire the knuckleheads I've got around here and just put my wife on the payroll. I know she'll get things done. And, I, and I'm not saying, and I'm joking, I'm not saying that to say anything other than, look, you say, why do you do this? Because we love it. Because we love God and we love you. That's why we did it for years before, the, before we ever got paid, for years. I, we, I pastored 100 people before I ever took a paycheck from this church. And I only say that to say that people will often try to misrepresent what you're doing. Oh, they're just in it for the money. That Pastor Anderson's just in it for the money. Pastor Anderson's in it because he loves the Lord. And any true man of God does it because they love God. And look, we're playing this youth rally, and on top of this youth rally, I still got to preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I still got to do all the things that we normally do. You say, and, and so we're working late, and we're doing those things. And, I'm, and, and again, I'm not complaining. I just want you to say, you say, why? Because we love your kids. Amen. We want to get a hold of their hearts. Amen. So don't, you, don't, you don't pay me to do anything. You provide for the needs of the pastor, and I hope when I'm gone and dead years from now, we've talked about that, that you'll provide for his needs and his wife so that they can be free to serve you. So Amaziah says, I had a job. And by the way, it's interesting to me that God, it's like he does it on purpose. He chooses Amaziah. What does the Bible say? The Lord took me as I followed the flock. He chose Amaziah when he was working. When he chose Elisha, when he was plying with 12 yoke of oxen. When he chose Peter, James, Andrew, and John, when they were fishing. When he chose Matthew, when he was working. Barnabas was a landowner. Paul was a tent maker. Luke was a doctor. It's funny to me that God never chooses. You say, why doesn't God choose the unemployed, just chronically unemployed, doesn't want to get a job? Why doesn't God choose that guy? That guy's got a lot, of, a lot of time on his hand. You know what God does? God chooses people that are working. Amen. You say, why? Because the ministry is work. Now, I've always just think, it's, it's interesting to me. If you look at it, and I'm not going to take the time to call out names or anything like that, but if you look at the people around this church that do the most, you think to yourself, they're They're busy. They're working, they're running businesses, they've got all these kids, they're homeschooling, they're doing this, and yet they're the one. Why? Because there's something about having a character of work, a work ethic, that God looks down and he finds somebody who's working. And he says, I can put them to work. So we see that God is looking willing people, willing for willing people, not professionals. God is looking for people who are already working. Let her see, God is looking for people who will go. Look at it, Amos 7.15. And the Lord took me as he followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, go prophesy unto my people. What prophesy means to preach. It's just funny to me. I can't help but notice it. Mark 16.15. And he said unto them, Go, go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28.19. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 22.9. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Luke 14, 23. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. You know what God is always telling people? Go. Go! 
Amos says, and the Lord said unto me, go. I want you to notice, lastly, that God is looking for people who are willing to stand against opposition. Look at verse 16. Now, therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, and by the way, this, I think this is the only time in the Old Testament that the nation of Israel is referred to as the house of Isaac. Often it is Jacob or Israel. Sometimes it is Abraham. Of course, of the three, of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here, he, the nation is referred to as the house of Isaac. Verse 17, therefore thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. You say, what in the world? I want you to notice that in verse 16, he, he's, he's saying, thou sayest, this is Amos saying, you're telling me, prophesy not. Prophesy not against Israel and drop not thy word against the house of Israel. Amos saying to Amaziah, you're telling me not to prophesy. And then Amos says, so here's my answer to your request. You're asking me to not prophesy and to drop not thy word against the house of Israel. So here's my answer. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be an harlot in the city. I just think, Pastor, you should be a little more positive. And thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword. And thy land shall be divided by the line. And thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. You say, what is going on? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, Amos, stop preaching. And he says, no. Today they'd be telling him, why do you got to keep bringing up the sodomites and the homosexuals? Why do you got to keep bringing up all these things? And you know what he says? He says, I'm going to keep preaching it. It's the word of God. I don't measure myself up by your society and your culture. I measure myself up by the plumb line of the word of God. And we would all do well. Do the same. Let's bow our heads and have a little prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the book of Amos. It's interesting to me that so many people so little, so know so little about Amos, and yes, there's so many great truths. Father, I pray you'd help us to not only build our lives on the Bible, but to measure our lives by the Bible. The great plumb line of the Word of God. Help us, Lord, to measure ourselves up to the plumb line, not to take it too personally. Not, not to change what the preacher is saying to just decide if that's what the Bible says, then I'm just going to do it. I'm going to measure myself up to the plumb line. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to